Hi, and welcome to our special comedy episode of Something to Say. I'm one of your hosts, Chris. Today we'll be learning about the comedy roots of my co-host, Sean, listening to his in-your-face rant that's stand-up comedy-themed, and we'll be discussing our favorite top five comedy movies of all time and just talking about funny stuff in general. So, one of the advantages of being the producer and engineer for the show is days like today, where I can record an intro to our show that my co-host Sean actually won't even hear until it airs. I've known Sean going on 25 years now after we met at a bar he was working at on a night I was the DJ doing karaoke. I had already had a career in stand-up comedy for a few years, and he was just starting out trying to get a stage time and name. I knew from that first meeting two things. We were going to become really great friends, and that going forward, whenever we were together somewhere in a room, that I was always going to be the second funniest person in that room. That's how much I think of Sean's comedic talents. He's the wittiest, funniest, and most clever comedian I've ever personally met or worked with. He can make anyone from a kid to a teen, to a millennial, to a grandmother laugh with different and age-appropriate versions of the exact same joke. He'll tell you he has lots of friends. What he won't tell you is he actually has hundreds and hundreds of friends. He'll joke and tell you he likes to just get up and make drunk people laugh. What he won't tell you is how he helped spearhead a comedy show benefit for the family of a classmate of mine who died in the Twin Towers on 9-11. He'll tell you how he's worked with Bill Burr, Craig Gass, Pauly Shore, and Frank Santorelli from The Sopranos. What he won't tell you is the dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of local and national comedians he has mentored, helped write for, given opening, middler, and headliner spots to, and even taken pay cuts to get both newcomers and comic friends more money instead just for them to have the stage time. He'll tell you how dirty he can be on stage, but he won't tell you how he personally handcrafted a special comedy show that was nearly 100% clean specifically so his elderly parents could attend and watch him perform for one of the only times in his comedy career. You know, I chose him as a co-host for this podcast because I know the effort, dedication, and time he puts into anything and everything he does. You know, when you start a podcast like this, you don't come right out of the gate with Hollywood and celebrities and sports stars knocking down your door to be on the show. So in the meantime, you do what we're doing. Try and bring you, the listener, some entertaining and informative material and stories. And that starts with good, informed hosts. As to anything you've heard to date on any of our podcasts we've recorded, I can promise you this. Sean has walked into the studio with anywhere from 10 to 25 pages fully handwritten notes and research for every episode, and he's a perfectionist to a fault when it comes to doing his best to entertain and produce a quality product. So today's episode is dedicated to my co-host, business partner, and friend, Sean. So let's jump right in. Sean, I'm going to turn the mic over to you because it's your turn to have something to say. Hey, everybody. I am so glad to be with you today. Uh, First of all, I cannot thank Chris enough. This is his brainchild, and through his blood, sweat, tears, and financial backing, this podcast is made possible. I am forever grateful and sincerely honored that I was asked to be co-host. I will do my best to uh, keep you guys entertained, maybe give you guys some informative information to work with in just everyday life. And again, no politics. We all need a break. So a little bit about my background, my bread and butter 
was, is, and always will be stand-up comedy. I've been performing, producing, promoting shows for almost 25 years. I remember back when I was a little kid and I would sneak out in the middle of the night and I would watch Johnny Carson on TV or Saturday Night Live and watch Johnny's monologue or his guest comedians. Sometimes my mom would be up and watching it and she'd actually let me sit and watch with it and that's where I developed my love of comedy. Uh, then I realized in school when you make your friends laugh, they like you and they're drawn to you. And uh, so I really just started kind of making people laugh all the way back from elementary school on. Um, in the 80s, there was the comedy boom and I would sit at home. I was obsessed with all the stand-up comedy TV shows and I would take a VCR. I would record every episode of stand-up comedy shows I could get and then I would actually take a second VCR, hook them together and make a master tape of just the ones that I thought were exceptional. And me and mom would watch them together and we would just laugh for hours. I started watching a lot of documentaries about comedy and comics, reading books about the subject, really treating it almost like a college course. And about the age of 19, I started writing material. I suffer from anxiety and horrible stage fright. But at least the creative juices were flowing and I was uh, at least planting the seed of maybe trying stand-up comedy someday. I would go see a lot of live shows and then little things started happening. Once you're in your 20s, everybody you know, your family and your friends, people start getting married. They have Jack and Jill's, stag parties, things like that. And everyone would come to me and say, hey, he's funny. He's not too shy. Maybe we'll ask him to uh, MC our raffle. And I remember one time, I don't even think I was 20 years old yet, and I'm emceeing a raffle at my sister's Jack and Jill, and all I did was Andrew Dice Clay jokes and Andrew Dice Clay's voice. That is some hacky shit right there. And you know what? People were laughing, and it felt good. But I would never be caught dead on a comedy stage doing someone else's material. I was just a kid and I was nervous and I wanted to see what it felt like. Then there was bar bands that used to come to the area, especially this one that's no longer open and in business, but it was called Makara's and it was back in the 90s and maybe early 2000s. This place held about a thousand people and there was one band in particular that used to play there named Itchy Fish an amazing Pearl Jam cover and literally they would be packed with over a thousand people in the audience and the owner was kind enough and the band and I had become friends where they wanted me to go out and intro them and I started to do a little bit of material and it went over really, really well and that felt good and I knew that someday I wanted to try stand-up comedy. So when I was in my late 20s, I was still scared as hell but I got really excited when I saw an ad in The Advocate, The Valley Advocate, where people used to get their information before the internet of what entertainment was going on in the area. And there was a small club called The Comedy Box and that was inside a restaurant called The Peking Garden. And they advertised open mic night for amateur comics and I just knew I had to give it a shot. I was so scared. The show was still over a month away. I signed up and I was told I could do about five minutes of material and I started really honing what I had been writing for the last several years into I guess what you might call an act. I went to a bunch of people that I know. I went to a handful of my closest friends and family and I begged them, do not tell anyone else about this. I told approximately five people 
I was actually going to try stand-up comedy in a real comedy club. And I knew that there was a very good chance I could bomb and I didn't want everyone I knew to see that because I would never live it down. And these five people swore to me they would not tell anyone else about it. So I showed up the night of the show. The place holds about 150 people and somewhere between 75 and 100 people in the crowd that night were my friends and family. So I guess they didn't keep their mouth shut. Well, I went up. I did about eight minutes and I walked off stage to a standing ovation. And I remember that night the relief that washed over me but also the joy. I actually went out in the parking lot and I sat in my car for just a minute by myself. And up until that day in my life, I thought tears of joy was just a figure of speech. I actually sat in my car alone and cried for just a minute because it felt so damn good. This is what I'm meant to do. This is my gift. And this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Well, the guys who ran the club thought my set was really good. They asked me to come back two weeks later, and I even was compensated. So you could say from that point on, I've been a professional stand-up comic. I've gone on to win several competitions, including the Extreme Comedy Challenge. I've opened for several famous people. Some of the household names would be Bobcat Goldthwaite, Bill Burr, Pauly Shore, and the rock band Stained. I've headlined all over the Northeast. And I have a couple of personal favorite highlights of my comedy career. I told you just a second ago that I won the Extreme Comedy Challenge. And just to give you a little bit of background into this, over 40 comedians entered this competition. It was 13 weeks long. And the first 10 weeks, they had what they called trial heats. There was a panel of judges. A handful of comics would go and they would simply vote on who was the best one of the night and that person would move on to week 11 at the semifinals. So the first 10 weeks happen, I was one of the 10 semifinalists. Now in week 11 and 12, they have five comics each night perform in front of a panel of judges and they end up picking out of those 10 the five best for the finals. Again, now I make it to the finals. In the very beginning of this competition, I was contacted by the producer, promoter, and creator of the competition. And basically what he told me was, I'm starting up a comedy competition. I have a guy who's probably going to win it. Everyone knows he's going to win it. He knows he's going to win it because he's Craig Gass. He's famous for being on the Howard Stern Show, and he's a national headliner. He says, but sometimes he's a little cocky. And you're about the only guy in New England that I've seen who's got a shot at beating him. So would you join my competition? Well, wouldn't you know, here comes the finals. It's me, Craig Gass, and three other really good comics. Again, panel of judges, all five of us go up and do our thing. And I absolutely slaughtered the room that night. Craig personally walked up to me in the green room before the judges had tabulated the voting and he said, I think there's been an upset tonight and he shook my hand and congratulated me. We were all called out onto the stage. They announced the scores and by one point, I was voted the grand prize winner of the Extreme Comedy Challenge. There was people from all six states of New England and New York City and that was definitely a huge highlight in my career. For a personal favorite highlight in my comedy career, several years later, Craig, who is the voice of Sam Kinison on the Howard Stern Show, 
got to do a 10th year anniversary of the passing of Sam. It was a memorial tribute show. And they asked Craig to handpick comedians from all around the country who he thought were excellent quality and influenced by Sam Kinison. He called me, and of course I said yes. Sam was my idol. I don't necessarily think he's the greatest comedian of all time, but he's certainly in the conversation. And he was my idol because he was fearless and no subject matter was off limits. So I went to New York City and actually got to perform. The show was recorded and a copy was given to Sam's family. And I will never, ever forget that night. And certainly I've been around for a majority of that career of yours, Sean. Um, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about how from all of those experiences – what other forms you branched off into? Well, it's almost a natural progression if you you know see sitcoms and movies that comedians get offered acting jobs. It's nothing that I was ever pursuing, but it certainly interests me and I don't claim to be an actor. Uh, but I was offered acting jobs and I ended up enjoying it and I've been told by the people that I worked for that I did a really good job. I would still like to take classes if I was going to ever do something major, you know. But uh, it's absolutely fun. It's creative. Uh, I've appeared in several episodes of an internet sitcom. I was uh, in a handful of independent films. Once I played a mafia kingpin. Another time I played a hard-ass cop. And then in a very dramatic role, which was certainly out of my comfort zone, but I welcomed the challenge and it ended up being a, a really great experience. I played the father of a missing teenager and uh, it was – I had to cry and do all kinds of dramatic stuff and I just basically winged it and they said that uh, they thought I was one of the best actors in the film. Uh, the downside of that movie was the fact that it actually premiered on the big screen and I got to tell you, I had no idea my ass was that fat. But uh, the movie itself was cool. It was a great experience and uh, the people I worked with were just awesome. A lot of us are still friends to this day. As far as improv, I did go to some classes where you just work out as improv comedy. And I did that to sharpen and hone my skills as a stand-up. And what I mean by that is if you're in the middle of a joke and the waitress drops a tray of drinks or somebody gets up and walks right in front of the stage and starts talking to somebody at the table. It makes you sharper. It makes you handle those unforeseen situations better and smoother and keep the, audi keep the audience interested and not seem like it knocked you off your game. Uh, as far as ever performing improv, I have zero interest. In fact, I'm absolutely not a fan of that branch of comedy and I find the TV show Whose Line Is It Anyway to be one of my least favorite shows I've ever watched. Not taking anything away from these guys. We're being honest here on our podcast and just kind of letting our feelings go. Super talented people, huge balls to get up there and do what they're doing because there's no real way to prepare for it. And there really are funny, creative, talented people but I'm not a fan of watching it and I'm not really a fan of uh, of performing it either. Okay, so I want to branch off of that with two questions and I'll explain why. <clears throat> First question is, uh, as a comedian, uh, there's a misconception amongst the audience that what a professional comedian would call a heckler a lot of the time is someone who thinks they're helping the act by interjecting or talking Tell us from your 
end of the stage and with the microphone in front of you and all this preparation and every diction of every word has to be in a perfect spot like in a puzzle um the value of hecklers at any show at an open mic or at a 10,000 person arena well basically there's so many aspects to heckling that i would love to touch on first of all i have ocd obsessive compulsive disorder i just pain over every word and the order of the words and I rehearse for hours and I get everything where I want it. So when I get heckled, I absolutely hate it. It throws off my rhythm. It throws off my game. I can be on a roll. And in my opinion, what a heckler is, is someone whose mom told him he was funny, someone whose girlfriends told her she was funny, someone who makes her co-workers laugh at the water bubbler or someone who makes his buddies in the shop laugh while they're working on their machines or taking their breaks. But it is always somebody who will never, ever have the balls to get near a microphone in front of a room full of strangers and stand by his own word. And it really just sucks. Thankfully, it seems to be getting out of style, but it's not completely gone. There's a comedian and I apologize that I don't remember his name. It may be something along the lines of Hofstetter. He's making actually a, a, a name for himself and starting to become famous because all he does is post YouTube videos of him handling hecklers and it's becoming very popular. I know that someone like Jerry Seinfeld writes every single day and pains over every word in his act. I didn't know he did that when I was doing it, so I'm not copying his style of creating comedy. It's just something that I've always done. So I like to be up there, live and die by my words. Now, having said that, when I do get heckled, I'm very prepared. I've never lost and I absolutely shred people to the point where I've actually seen some of them get up and leave and I've never felt bad. People are told not to talk during the show. You're not helping. You're not cool and you're not funny. So if I crush you, you started it and I finished it and that's how I feel about hecklers. I absolutely hate them. I think they're assholes. I think they're wannabe comics who will never have the balls to actually try stand-up comedy and I'm glad when I crush them. In fact, people have told me that I've done so well with hecklers that they're convinced that it was a plant and that it was set up. And I promise you, I have never done that once in my entire career. All right. Now it's time for one of our fan favorite segments of our show called In Your Face. Sean comes into the show with a subject I know nothing about, talks about it for a couple minutes, and then we talk about it afterwards. Sean, the microphone is yours. For this episode of In Your Face, I take you to the world of stand-up comedy. Throughout my almost 25-year career in stand-up, I've always tried to go out of my way to be respectful to my audience as well as the venue I'm performing at. I'm very clear that my material is not clean or politically correct, so if a venue doesn't want that type of show, I don't surprise them and do it anyway. I either book a cleaner show for them or we agree not to do business and no hard feelings. And the public has this information before they spend their hard-earned money on a ticket. Any logical person who is not a fan of dirty jokes simply doesn't buy a ticket and moves on with their life. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. And more importantly, there's nothing wrong with them. Not everybody likes the same comedy, music, TV, movies, 
paintings, etc., etc. The list goes on and on. There's approximately 7 billion people in the world and approximately 7 billion different opinions on what is quote-unquote obscene. So when someone who knows they are easily offended comes to my show and then afterwards says it was too dirty, I kind of don't give a shit. Don't get me wrong, I'm nice and I'm polite to them, but I explain that they just shouldn't have attended in the first place. But with how society has changed, there's a new phenomenon that I've recently heard about in New York City comedy clubs and some other major cities. People are buying tickets to shows and trying to find the slightest thing a comic says that they can determine to be politically incorrect and then yell the word triggered over and over again to try to ruin the show. Triggered. Triggered. Wow. You are a special kind of douchebag. This ruins it for the rest of the audience. This would be no different than me buying a ticket to the following events, which I already know I won't like. Opera, symphony, ballet, a musical, a play, etc., etc. And then I sit in the crowd the whole time these performing artists, who have spent hours practicing, and now they're pouring their hearts out on stage to a room full of other audience members who love those kinds of events, and I yell all night long, This is boring. You suck. I hate this, etc., etc. This is the United States of America. We have freedom of speech, and if something is offensive, we attach age limits to who can experience it. And you know what? I'm all in favor of that. And people who don't like that type of comedy should never buy a ticket. Don't buy that guy's CD. Don't buy that woman's DVD. Don't buy any of their merchandise. Nothing from that performer. But to disrupt a performance is a clear sign of a mentally deficient, desperate, pathetic asshole who probably isn't all that offended, but rather is starved for attention and must try to make everything in the world about themselves. If the next generation truly despises political incorrectness the way the media tries to say they do, then comedians like me won't have a platform anyway. And that is the correct way for things to happen. If nobody wants to hear it, then nobody is going to book us. But if one person thinks they have the right to tell everyone in the world what is funny and what isn't, their mental health probably needs a lot of professional help. My shows are full of silly comedy. Some material can be shocking or raunchy, but I try to make it clever and creative. I have made thousands of people from several states feel really happy and forget about all of life's stresses for a night. My material is not aimed to hurt anyone based on race, sexual preference, gender, or anything else. If anything, I do a lot of self-deprecating humor and make fun of myself more than anything else. There's so many names of quote-unquote dirty comics that I could list right now who've had very successful careers because there is a market for it. And I hope I've made a majority of people who have seen me live have a fun night out and feel like they got their money's worth. From the feedback and repeat customers over the years, all indications are that I have accomplished just that. So to sum up, 
If you want to protest outside a venue, like I saw outside an Andrew Dice Clay show in the 90s, then that is your right as an American. Peaceful protests make our country great. But to attend a show with the sole purpose of ruining it for the performer, and more importantly, the audience, is such an asshole move. When you act that crazy, people don't take you seriously even if you have a good point. You've done nothing to further your cause, and not only are you a grade-A asshole, but your efforts are an epic failure. I, I made a couple notes uh, as we were listening to that, and because I don't know what you're going to talk about, not even the subject till then, I, I made a couple notes. So, you know, going back to the comedy people we watched growing up, you know, I've actually seen a lot recently of interviews with Jerry Seinfeld where he said he will not perform at colleges anymore because of the level of political correctness. And it doesn't take away whatever causes people are interested in. He goes, but they literally walk in there forgetting what funny is before the show even starts. And several other comics have seen that. And a person who walks in to see Andrew Dice Clay knows what they're in for. A person who walks in to see Carrot Top knows they're going to see a bunch of goofy stuff, but they might be surprised if all of a sudden, Carrot Top does a bunch of impressions for 90 minutes. Someone who, if you're not in comedy circles and know one of the cleanest looking people in America, Bob Saget from Full House, is one of the dirtiest working comics, but it's not a gag. It's, it's who he is. So where's the balance between the audience's expectation of what the comic should be and the product that they got? You know you're going to hear you might be a redneck from Jeff Foxworthy 20 times in a skit right. as opposed to... Uh, a Dave Chappelle, and 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 to add to that, with the five questions I'm putting on you, you get someone who literally just doesn't give a shit, and they don't care about sponsors or fame or TV shows. The name that comes to the top of my head is Doug Stanhope, Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah, yeah, both of those guys. Sure. I mean, for me, it's all about how you present the event. Uh, we use different terms, adult humor, graphic language, not for the faint of heart, not for the easily offended. Um, if you're going to a comedy club, then it's almost always anything goes, and that's kind of common knowledge. So if you, if you just like stuff from like The Tonight Show, but you think, you know, when you see something PG-13, it's a little edgy, that's okay. That's your personality. You were born that way or you've developed that through through your life experience and there's nothing wrong with that. Don't show up at a New York City comedy club on Friday night and get upset that somebody's swearing on stage or doing a joke about sex. Just don't go to the show, you know? We're not out here trying to hurt people. We're actually trying to do the exact opposite. Make people feel really happy and there's a big market for it. Not my entire act isn't screaming swears. My entire act isn't sex, sex, sex. It's just whatever I come up with in the writing process that's funny, but I don't think any subject's off-limits if you make it clever and creative, and that was something I learned from the late, great Sam Kennison. Excellent. So since we're in the middle of this uh, comedy-specific episode, we're going to jump right into our next subject, and this is a segment we call High Five, and what we do is Sean and I agree on a subject matter list and we come up with our list of top five, and walking into this show, we don't know either's choices, selections, until we're live, and we kind of talk and debate. So for this episode, it's going to be on what we each feel are the best five 
top five comedy movies of all time. But before we get to that, let's let's talk about what makes a great comedy movie, Sean. I guess maybe when it comes to movies, because my tastes are just a little bit off the mainstream, I'm not looking for cinematography, whether it's comedy or any kind of movie. I'm not looking for this great, deep, profound story. When we're talking about comedy movies, for me, it's just what makes me laugh. The acting doesn't have to be phenomenal. The story doesn't have to be phenomenal. Yeah, it helps. And yeah, it's a way to get it out to a larger audience. But my tastes are very offbeat, slapstick. Think of the classic, you know, airplane type movies. Those are the ones that get me. And other people can't sit through five minutes of them. And I get it because they're very, very kind of, I guess, dumb would be a way to look at it. But they make me laugh my ass off, and that's how I judge whether a movie's funny or not. Yeah, I think to to transcend generations, um, more often than not, couple couple characteristics I've noticed in my life of watching comedy movies, it almost has to be an unintentional hit. There were like no expectations, or you had kind of like a murderer's row of of people in it, and it just grew and it became this cultural phenomenon. Um, you know, it, it has to be, has to be funny, obviously, but I look at, I look at something like, uh, the incredible cast of Ghostbusters. It very entertaining movie and I loved it growing up. Um, but not like rolling over in my seat laughing. It was entertaining and funny. And then it kind of had some sci-fi in it. Um, movies that have that balance of either comedy, drama, these buddy, flicks you see with like a comedic actor and an action person or that have a bit of drama or they get into the drama side of most of the John Hughes movies even something like Beverly Hills Cop with, with Eddie Murphy one of the greatest stand-ups of all time that had that kind of action side to it planes trains automobiles with Steve Martin uh and John Candy really that stand the test of time you know I I like the jerk with Steve Martin but would somebody who's never seen it before watching it in 2020 think it's funny I don't know. Animal House, yes. Now, since Animal House, you're never going to see any teen movie, any type of comedy movie where it, it eventually ends up in some type of toga party where you don't automatically think of Animal House. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a given right there. And and it's really like you're saying, you know, some of these movies, they're comedies mixed with a romantic story or comedies mixed, mixed with action or a really good script and they're great, and they're entertaining, and you love them start to finish. But with my list, I just went for the ones that are hilarious. And, you know, I just think of the ones where I was overwhelmed when the movie was over at how much I liked it and how funny it was and just wanted to share it with friends and family. Great. Let's jump right into the list. Uh, five to one, one being uh, the best. Let's hear your number five, Sean. So let me start off by saying I hate Chris again because to try and pick five movies of all time that are comedies, my list would probably change each day and I batted some around and I don't want to be like, oh, honorable mention, but I just remember 
going to the movie theaters and seeing the first Hangover. I remember going to the movie theaters and seeing the first American Pie or even all the Jackass series and things like that. I left the Jackass movies out because they're not technically movies. They're more like a documentary. So uh, there's just so many movies that could – all of the Police Academy movies, I, I probably watched them till the VCR tapes wore out. Yes, I'm that old. But uh, the top five I came up with when put on the spot, and again, this could change at any point, but here we go. My number five is going to be Christmas Vacation. And it's not just because of the time of year that we're in right now. This movie is funny whenever you watch it. It has creepy cousin Eddie, the dim-witted father Clark, the annoyed bored teens Audrey and Rusty, and all of the older relatives really make a big impact in this movie. It's hilarious. It's well cast with some really big name stars. The wife, as usual, is annoyed by her buffoon husband, but tries to see the good in him and he defends him even when he really doesn't even deserve it. There's lots of crazy antics and also the underlying theme of how corporate greed in America just keeps going up and up. It was just a cool, funny, great movie from start to finish and hilarious. So you said this in a prior podcast that great minds think alike and it's it's scary that there's 50,000 movies out there to pick from. And my number five was the original vacation because it had really at the time it was just a snapshot of Americana of the family trip, the family vacation. Yeah, it was to Wally World. Everybody piling in the station wagon. I was one of six kids. We did that. And while the trip was different and the characters were different, it's, it's what we all went through and, you get to laugh at it twice because it was funny when I saw it, but being a parent now and knowing everything involved in getting the kids packed and in the vehicle and on the plane and at our destination and getting groceries and everything that could go wrong and the people you're around year round, now you're just going to spend exclusively this time with, it, it just resonated with me. And uh, on a personal level, I, th I think Chevy Chase was a comedic genius who didn't live up to his potential. He, It's very well known he wasn't well-liked in the industry, but once you put him on the screen, once you put him in a vacation movie, once you put him in Fletch, once you put him in Three Amigos, anything like that, it's just it's just comedy gold and the understatement of his sarcasm and and the look at the American family unit. To this day, I can still laugh at it as much as I did the first time I saw it. Yeah, it's a great pick, and that's one of the movies I batted around, and I feel like I was just covering the series by choosing the Christmas one, but that first one is such a classic. Even when it's on regular TV and you catch it partway through, you can sit there and get lost in it for 20, 30 minutes, and you're right about Chevy Chase. When it comes to comedic acting, he can just make a face on the screen, and it is worth a thousand words, and it'll make you laugh your ass off. Right. Great choice. So, <clears throat> flattery. Imitation is a sincerest form of flattery, and when you look back, whether as we continue with this list and we see our favorite comedies or the great comedies of all time, they're always going to spawn imitators for decades and decades and decades. And if over the past couple decades you fell in love with any of the goofy hotshot movies, uh, any of the naked gun movies, any of the um, scream spinoffs, the scary movies, and all those where it's just kind of riffs on the whole genre, that really all traces back to my number four because 
it's it's something that doesn't follow the comedic formula of telling in threes and using a funny word k it goes out on a limb where on paper on a script filming it it might not be funny but once an audience gets in front of it it, it just creates absolute uh cinematic magic so my number four was the the father of all of those types of movies airplane oh yeah yeah, I mean, it's one of the most quoted movies still to this day, and it is just basically the grandfather of that whole genre of this, the silly, I don't know what you want to call it, offbeat, slapstick, just, you know, set up punchline, goofy, crazy, a lot of puns, and uh, super entertaining, the whole series. I love all the Naked Gun movies, love all the airplane movies, and uh yeah. Uh, people to this day will, you know, don't call me Shirley, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's your number four? So for my number four, and going back to what you just said about those types of movies where they uh, do parodies of a whole bunch of movies from other genres, uh, one of the ones that at times in my life has been maybe even my favorite comedy of all time but didn't make my top five, I just wanted to give it a mention, was Not Another Teen Movie. Which basically yes. took all the '80s and you know from the football, high school football ones to the Pretty in Pink's to the Sixteen Candles and Ten Ways to and all of that stuff. And that movie, it's it's pretty hardcore when it pushes the envelope. But just the theme of making fun of all those eighty comedies—that's what you made me think of. And it seems like they said, "Okay, we have enough jokes," and they're like, "Let's add another 40. I mean, you you went seconds between jokes, and Chris Evans, who's now known as Captain America did a great job in that and they just hit on every stereotype of every teen movie they made fun of every one of them and it, it was just really if you got up to to get popcorn go to the bathroom you missed a whole lot yeah and they didn't just didn't just do all that they made it extra filthy too so not for everybody but yep. uh my number four i remember just jaw dropping as i was walking out of the theater didn't even know what it was about didn't know what to expect went to see this movie something about mary it's silly it's slapstick there's moments that are shocking sometimes it's politically incorrect very well written very well cast a lot of surprising twists and turns who's really good in the movie who's really a bad person in the movie but mostly it's just crazy hilarious moment after crazy hilarious moment and i love that movie there's something about mary all right. Number three, I talked earlier about uh, a movie having a cast that's almost a, a murderer's row of talent. And this is sports related. And whether you're into the sport or not, and that's a great thing about it because I've watched it with sports fans. I've watched it with non-sports fans. And it it's just beginning to end. Uh, such a great movie. Such a great premise. It, again, is quoted till... Till currently and in today, and that would be Caddyshack. You, you got Chevy Chase, you got Bill Murray, you got Rodney Dangerfield, you got Ted Knight. Uh, you have constant joke after joke after joke, and that has things that are true back then as it does now. And again, I've watched it with people who've never picked up a golf club in their life, and they still relay that humor to everyone. And you just can't understate Bill Murray and Chevy Chase carrying that movie. It, it was just over the top good over-the-top funny. After I finished my list, I thought of Caddyshack. It could have been my number one tomorrow. It could have been my number one yesterday. It didn't make my five, 
but it, it absolutely deserved to. I thought about it a lot since we wrote our lists. Great choice. Everybody loves that movie, quotes it all the time, and it's just held up over time. Sure. But, yeah. My number three, this one sums up all of the 80s comedies. I wanted to pick one because that's when I was growing up. And that's when I was introduced to this. And for me, it is the clear-cut champion of all 80s comedies, Better Off Dead. If you had to choose one from that generation, this is just by far my favorite. Nonstop silliness and very quotable even through today with the I want my $2 and Lane Meyer every time you get in a car and you're at a red light and you're revving the gas, etc. And when she squeezes the guy's cheeks and starts saying Christmas, <laughs> I mean, it, it's just it, that movie is nonstop hilarity. And for my money, by far the best of all those 80s silly comedies. Yeah, John Cusack, uh, his talents can't be understated in and. I put him in a category of kind of, he was part of the backbone of 80s movies growing up. He wasn't the big uh, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, but he was like a John Cryer. He was he was a pivotal backbone to every movie, even ones where he was one of the main characters, High Fidelity, um, Say Anything, and he was just so great in that movie. I, I know the dad was also... I think Winchester from MASH and just the subtle things that they drop in where he just says, what's this at the breakfast table? And she says, I know you don't like all the grease from bacon, so I boiled it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, my my favorite line that most people miss is when uh, the big fat diner owner is trying to fight the guy. And he's trying to get to him, and he's inside of his car, and he's trying to pull him out and beat him up. And he says, I'm going to activate your dental plan. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I, I sometimes get that movie mixed up with uh, One Crazy Summer, which I think also had John Cusack and Demi Moore and, and the guy who kept trying to call into the radio station to win the prize at the end of the summer. And then his phone gets disconnected from the wall and he blows up the radio station. Yeah, that was awesome. Bobcat was great in that one, too. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you can't go wrong with that. And it, it's one of those... Um, one of those movies, and I talked about it in a other episode, like a Lost Boys or a Point Break, don't even try and remake it. It was so unique. It spoke to that generation at the time. You're, you're never going to be able to kind of uh, make a remake of that. Yeah, Cusack can be in the silliest comedy or a serious movie or a romance movie. And no matter what, he is just the perfect cast for like the boy next door. Yep, yep. So we have a few more on the list to get through. So I said this earlier, and and this is true for my number two and my number one. Uh, it's very easy in a movie about uh, who done it, in an action end of the world flick, in a big Transformers level summer tentpole movie. It's very easy to stay safe with a formula because you're investing so much time and money and efforts of the studio of the crew that it's easy to guy loses a girl guy gets a girl back guy has to come up with fifty thousand dollars to save a family member with a transplant it's very easy to follow and there are movies that have come along where you're like wow up until the last scene you kind of don't know how it's going to end and i think of just breakthrough movies like american pie where it was just it spoke to everybody as a teenager um and movies like that so for me my number two not only did it have an incredible cast and it made somebody's career and i'm glad because they're one of my favorite comedic actors on tv and and film of all time 
And that's the 40 year old virgin, uh, you know, the cast, the story, the, the deadpan laugh, Steve Carell, it really made his career. And, and I think I could watch that movie in another 20 years and it's just as funny. Steve Carell is just the shit, man. That guy is so talented. He doesn't even look like he's trying and he's just makes you die at everything he says, everything he does, every face he makes. That movie was surprisingly great. That's an awesome pick. I loved it. I remember it going long at the end and getting weird and artsy, but it really didn't ruin the movie. Overall, uh, just a great, great comedy and hilarious from start to finish. And Carell, man, that guy is just gold. If I was ever half as good as him, I'd probably be a billionaire. Yeah, if if you want to see something really funny and get a really encapsulation of his humor and his dryness, YouTube this, Steve Carell and Kristen Wiig, hilarious in Golden Globes. I don't want to give away any of this segment. It's about three minutes long. It's absolutely tears in my eyes. Just look up Steve Carell and Kristen Wiig, hilarious in Golden Globes. I'll try and see if I can get the link up on the website. Those are two heavy hitters right there. She's one of the best ever as well. Yep. Who do you got next? My number two, Cheech and Chong, Up in Smoke. These two amazing comedians translate so well to movies. They're so great at playing moron stoners, which really just proves how brilliant they are in real life. When you try to play an idiot or a dummy or someone who's got a wicked buzz going, it can go horribly wrong. It's really hard to do, and those guys are really talented, and they're great at it. The movie's crazy, it's bizarre, it's very silly from start to finish. They're, those guys are going to be remembered as classic legends in the world of comedy, and out of all their movies, most of which were great, that one for me is by far the best. Up in Smoke, Cheech and Chong, number two. And so we spoke of this in prior episodes too. Um, it's it's not for any other reason that it just never worked out that way or I had access. I've actually never seen a single minute of a Cheech and Chong movie. I'm familiar with them. I didn't go out of my way to not see them. I just have never seen uh, a single second of film of, of either of their films. Yeah, no exaggeration. I think I may have watched that movie about 75 times. Right. And well, uh, Maybe it's and something it, I got to check it, out. And it isn't just for stoners. Like, you know, I'm not some big total partier druggy guy who's totally into it because oh yeah you know they smoke pot all the time it's hilarious because those guys are talented and brilliant nice well, well we got you over on that side of the mic why don't we jump right into your number one sean all right so my number one is uh probably surprising to many people i don't you know i don't care that people want to say you know, something along the lines of Citizen Kane or The Sound of Music or, you know, things like that are the greatest pieces of cinema. This was funniest movies of all time. And this one just punched me in the stomach from the opening second and never let me catch my breath for the entire movie. And that is Bruno, Sasha Baron Cohn. I mean, in my opinion, this movie is not gay bashing. It's a parody. The brilliance of Sasha Baron Cohen is he's multi-layered, and I'll touch on two of those layers. One, the people in his movies are not actors, and they're not in on the joke at the time of the filming. That's where Tom Green went wrong. 
and I do love Tom Green, but he got it wrong with his movie, Freddy Got Fingered. He tried to do practical jokes with actors who knew the script, and it really just bled through onto the screen and made it horrible. Sasha Baron Cohen makes cinematic movies that are practical jokes on people, and they're not in on it when it's happening, and it's just brilliant. And number two, he exposes people who are homophobic and portrays them in a negative light. In a crazy, silly, politically incorrect way, I personally believe his career in TV and movies has exposed homophobia, racism, and all kinds of things in a really sneaky but brilliant way. Plus, the movie Bruno is just shockingly, draw-droppingly funny from start to finish. I, I can't agree with you more uh, on, on his brilliance and you know, to listen to him in interviews, you know, good interviews, not not press junkets. Listen to him on Stern. He was supposed to be in the uh, Queen movie, not Bohemian Rhapsody, but they were working on another one. And just you look at someone who's so funny and realize the amount of time and thought process that goes into it. You know, it's very well known in the comedy world for his on the spot and what a kind of off off the cuff comedic genius Robin Williams was that he was backstage rehearsing placement of every word and what voice and what he was going to do. And, and while they're two different paths, I put them in the same category as, as far as being able to transfer that comedic talent and bril- brilliantness to the screen, to their scripts, to, to what they oversee to produce that. And I don't think that his movies are in the same category as like a jackass because that's more documentary guys, you know, hurting themselves. He really, and, and even on a show that he has on Showtime, like you said, the way he's, he has politicians, he exposes homophobic, racist people, and he just does it in such a hilarious way. And even when he's a goofball, like when he was in Talladega Nights with Will Ferrell, just he's a guy you just start to kind of giggle the minute he walks on screen. Oh, yeah. He is just crazy talented. The number of characters that he has that are excellent and sustained and from his original TV show, like, you know, Ali G and, and all of that kind of stuff, the guy is just over the top. But at the end of the day, he really is exposing these people for the morons they are and then putting it out there for public consumption. Yep. He's not promoting it. He's not condoning it. But he might make them think that he is so they'll let their guard down and show their true colors. It's It's brilliant and it's fucking funny. So for me, my number one um, is for me the funniest movie that I ever, I think back to walking out of a theater and just crying and saying, oh no, it's not showing anymore tonight. I have to buy a ticket and go see it again tomorrow. Now certain movies, and I'll just use The Hangover because it's a great movie and whenever it's playing on the TV on a Saturday afternoon, I'll watch it. I'll watch it interested, not necessarily watch it all laughing because you know the end. It's hard for a movie to be funny after you've seen it and even know the ending because you'll never laugh the same way twice, but I still laugh as hard. I had my son watch it as kind of the litmus test and, and he loved it. And for me, that is something that's on your list already. There's something about Mary. I think it's highly underrated. The writer, director, producer, uh, on air in movie talent that Ben Stiller is and in going back to his days of MTV, what he's brought 
to the American culture from a comedy standpoint. Yeah, I mean, uh, great choice at number one. I batted that around on another day. It wouldn't make my top five because there's just so many great ones. I'm sitting here, Caddyshack's not on my list, Hangover's not, American Pie's not, Animal House isn't, and 50 billion others, all the police academies and the hot shots and the airplanes and, you know, on and on and on. I think it's cool that we both ended up with that one on our list because I don't know that it gets the credit it's deserved over the over the years uh, with some of the other movies that we've mentioned in this segment. And you always have to have a comedic foil, and I don't think that movie works if Matt Dillon's not in it. Oh, just almost like the lovable bad guy. Yeah. You know, uh, brilliant. Every single bit in one of those offbeat slapstick comedies can go wrong. And not be funny. And and when you've sat through one of those movies, it's painful. This one pretty much clicked on all cylinders. And that's hard to do. And it was awesome. And you're right. Ben Stiller, phenomenal. Yeah. the Everyone in that movie was great at what they did. Great. So everyone out there listening, you know, we don't. We don't come on here and try and tell you this is what has to be your five favorite comedies. But I'm sure as I'm hearing Sean talking, it's making me think of a bunch of movies and I'm kind of smiling and and maybe the same for Sean as I'm talking and just jarring our memories. And that's all we wanted to do was kind of take you on a walk down memory lane. You may have a completely different list. There are people who love the Monty Python movies and I've never seen them. And I, I just don't have an appreciation for that type of humor, but I recognize their place in, in the history of comedies, uh, you've got physical comics and comedians like, uh, Tommy Boy, where you just, he, you know, Chris Farley walks on stage and you just laugh. Now I watch with my kids because they really like Adam Sandler movies and I'll watch them and reminisce, but I won't laugh as hard at Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison as I did when I was younger. And, you know, I'm, we're only a couple of years difference in age from Adam Sandler. Um, but it's still great to, to see those movies through the next generation's eyes. Yeah, Happy Gilmore is always on my list of some of the funniest movies ever. So uh, for me, it just stands out as his best, but that's personal preference. You know, the guy's a billionaire for a reason, and uh, he just does something that uh, draws people in and makes them want to keep going see his very dumb, silly comedies that you have to be brilliant to make a dumb, silly comedy successful. All right, that's going to wrap up our comedy theme special on our Something to Say podcast. Thanks for joining, and thanks for listening to the very end. Hey, if you liked what you heard today and you want to hear some more episodes, go to our website, www.somethingtosay.com. That's something, T-W-O-Say.com. And if you have an extra minute after listening to the podcast, go ahead and leave us a comment or give us a rating. Help us get a wider audience so we can provide you guys with better, bigger quality entertainment. We'll talk to you soon.